This episode is supported through Damsel in Defense, a U.S.-based company specializing in personal protection products, equipping, empowering, and educating. Check it out at our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. If this is your first time listening to Bag of Bones, then you're exempt from this next request. But if you've been here a time or two and plan on continuing, could you please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review? It really helps the platforms know that Bag of Bones is something that people are enjoying and that they should share it with more people. I would greatly appreciate it. It'll only take two minutes. I'll wait right here until you get back. Once upon a time, before Walt Disney created the Disney Princess Dynasty, even before his mouse whistled his first tune, fairy tales were being handed down through generations. These stories may have morphed and grown and jumped into other literary forms until they barely resemble their first tellings, and others have remained true and as endearing, treasured, as it is shared with the next in our lineage. Still, they all have their origins. And sometimes it's interesting to go back into the history vault to see how they've changed with the times. If I had to guess, I'd say 90% of Disney's library owes its success to the classic tales of old. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. A fairy tale is a story that listeners all agree to suspend belief and accept that witches, goblins, talking animals, and of course fairies, are real and can interact with one another in a common language. And while not all fairy tales end happily ever after, or even have fairies in them, a fairy tale story can also express great over-the-top happiness, happily ever after, love at first sight, and so on. Over the years, as the stories have changed to fit the culture and the audience, several story styles eventually merged to make for a large melting pot of story concepts. For example, most fairy tales were not meant for children. They were adult stories that would be shared around a campfire or at a friend's hearth, which is why many of the early tales had a lot of sex and violence in them. As the stories continued to be passed on, many tellers began to include morals and lessons to create a teaching tool, and others that would eventually become tales for children were scrubbed down to almost an unrecognizable tale from its original. This is when the fairy tales and the folk tales kind of intermingle. Folk tales, like fables, were created to teach a lesson using ghost stories, over-exaggerated subjects, and larger-than-life feats. What's confusing about these are that sometimes they're based on real people or events, and sometimes completely fictitious. If you'd like to test your skills on fact or fiction on a few folk tales, episode 30 has some good ones. 
And then finally in the collection of literary story genres would be the fable. The fable is a succinct fictional story in prose or verse that features animals, plants, or inanimate objects that are all anthropomorphized and are great for teaching moral lessons. Again, believe it or not, they weren't originally meant for children either, but it was a way to teach and not call attention to a specific problem without, you know, putting someone on blast. Like, I can hear it now. A guy starts to notice that his behaviors might be ones that are in the story, so he asks, Hey, are you talking about me? And the storyteller can say, honestly, I don't know, Gary, are you identifying with the arrogant hair? It just kind of works. So the combination of all these things create what we now refer to as fairy tales. It's a mixture, and the rules kind of ebb and flow to fit the purpose for sharing the story, which I think is really neat. But we can count on a few variables. Good will conquer evil. Actions have consequences. And everyone, in spite of their upbringing, size, finances, or family station, can overcome great obstacles. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. Can I just be real a second? I live full-time on the road in a camper, and because I choose this life, I do need to take extra care when it comes to my safety. I would hate to have to give up my dreams that I've worked so hard to reach because I didn't take these few extra steps. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, they made it easy for me to take extra precautions for my own personal safety. I started purchasing Damsel in Defense products and I love the way they are made. They're not bulky or hard to use, and they really have my safety in mind. They didn't break the bank either. And bonus, they come in all kinds of colors, styles, and even some sparkle. Thanks to them, I am free to roam about this great country and feel safe knowing that I have some sort of safety device within arm's reach or on my person. If you do not have at least one method of self-protection with you or around you, I urge you to check out our exclusive page, www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones, and take responsibility for your safety so you can enjoy life. I am proud to have them in the Bag of Bones family, and you'll love them too. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Aesop was a Nubian fabulist. In today's language, this merely tells us of his African descent and that he liked to tell stories. His collection of tales are often called fables because he follows the template that his stories are relatively short, end with a moral, and replace humans with the not-so-offensive animal characters. His history tells us that he was a slave and lived in Greece in the 6th century BC, and that he never wrote any of his stories down. All of Aesop's fables that we know and love today, like The Tortoise and the Hare, Br'er Rabbit, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, The Lion and the Mouse, The Town Mouse and the Country Mouse, 
and over 300 more, which you've probably all heard, but wouldn't even realize it. The plot often involves a silly mistake or a cunning trick. As I mentioned before, it was until the 18th century that fables were largely put to adult use by teachers, preachers, speechmakers, and moralists. La Fontaine, a fabulist himself, in the 1730s wrote, quote, We consider ourselves happy if, in giving them an attraction to useful lessons which are suited for their age, we have given them an aversion to the profane songs which are put into their mouths and which only serve to corrupt their innocence, end quote. I find it funny that parents and children have been having this same battle for literally centuries. Let me share an example of a main story and some of its variations. Same moral, different players. The main story, the lamb and the wolf. A wolf comes upon a lamb and, in order to justify taking its life, accuses it of various misdemeanors, all of which the lamb proves to be impossible. Losing patience, the wolf says the offenses must have been committed by someone else in its family and it does not propose to delay its meal by inquiring any further. The morals drawn are that the tyrant can always find an excuse for his tyranny and that the unjust will not listen to the reasoning of the innocent. A Greek version uses the rooster and the cat. Seeking a pretext to kill the rooster, the cat accuses it of waking people up early in the morning and then of incest with its sisters and daughters. In both cases, he answers that humanity benefits from his activities. But the cat ends the argument by remarking that it is now her breakfast time and cats don't live on dialogues. The Latin proverb expressed it that an empty belly has no ears. The Buddhists take on the same moral lesson has the protagonists a panther and a goat. The goat has strayed into the presence of the panther and tries to avert its fate by greeting the predator politely. It is accused of treading on the tail and then scaring off its prey, for which the crime, the goat is made the substitute. And then finally, a similar story involving birds is found in Persian fables as the partridge and the hawk. The unjust accusation there is that the partridge is taking up all of the shade, leaving the hawk out in the hot sun. When the partridge points out that it's midnight, it is killed by the hawk for contradicting. The moral, quote, the lamb appeals to natural law, to scripture, and to statutory law, and is answered by the wolf with perversions of all of these, end quote. So paraphrasing, that's when the rules are in place and the wolf looks for reasons to do as he needs to do. So if you think this is stuff just from the olden days and the wolf and the lamb stories have no relevance today, for example, two words, eminent domain. The Brothers Grimm. Yes, that really is their name. It isn't just a clever marketing gimmick. They were word purists. They thought the most beautiful and pure way to capture their German history was through the power of story. They believed that the very essence of what it meant to be German would be found in these stories. They felt that a firm understanding of their origins, which would be found in these narrations, would in turn strengthen their unity as a country and as a culture. So they systematically went out into the country to collect as many of the folk tales and fairy tales and eventually legends as they could find 
and capture them forever in print so the future will learn from its past. They became the first and best-known collectors of their history of story in German and in Europe. Jacob worked tirelessly to keep the initial framework of each of the tales, and Wilhelm would painstakingly rewrite each and every one for preservation. They studied the stories, learned their origins, and attempted to preserve the original oral narrations. They invited storytellers from all over Europe to visit them in their home and regale them with their stories. They invited peasants, those from the middle class, and even entertained aristocrats. They wrote down and sometimes combined what probably started as the same story, but was altered by the social class that was telling it. Even though they published their first collection in 1812, they continued to search for new versions, new stories, and began to modernize some of the folktales that they had to make them more reader-friendly. They too realized that their tales were not for children. But when another writer, Charles Perrault, began to romanticize some of the original stories and even adjust them to be suitable for children, they did likewise, but still staying true to their German heritage. Culture is tied to its language, they believed, and when the stories they found had French words in it, but a German setting, they would adjust the words to make it cohesive. This is why you'll see many versions of these stories, because each updating of the book, Wilhelm smoothed out the plots, filled in the gaps, kept the timelines, and took care not to detract from its original rustic tone. The Brothers Grimm were not the original authors of these fairy tales, but keepers of the word. Because of their research and diligence to authenticity, we have this glimpse into the lives, the lessons, and the language of a time long gone by. By the time they published their final book in 1857, they had accumulated over 200 individual stories, and from their first to their seventh book, new authors were creating new stories from these originals. In their later publications, when they were working on wording to make it more consumable, this was when Wilhelm began to make them more child-friendly. At the urging of their readers, they also added Christian elements as well as Greek, Roman, and Norse mythology. When later complaints came forward to completely water down the stories for the sake of the children, this is when Wilhelm put his foot down. He was a purist, after all, and he felt that in this time the tales were of value the way they were and correctly reflected the culture that remains consistent throughout the years. The discipline of the era relied on fear to keep children safe, and that's the reason why many of the stories were told in the first place. He refused to remove any of the tales, but allowed a warning to be placed at the front of the book, cautioning parents to allow some stories to be read when the child is of the appropriate age. They set the standard for research and academics. Their methodology of collection and their care of the subject matter, it is said that their work makes up the very best accumulation of folktales and legends in the world. Charles Perrault is another great collector of the classic folktales. His editing work is more familiar through the Disney movies, but you may also recognize his hand by his collection of poems, songs, and stories that were published under the title of The Tales of Mother Goose. 
Originally a lawyer, Charles Perrault began to dabble with poetry to entertain his son. He eventually went on making his life's work one of promoting literature. Perrault believed that as civilization progresses, literature evolves with it, and that therefore ancient literature is inevitably more coarse and barbarous than modern literature. And this was why Disney was more apt to go with Perrault's version of the classic tales. He believed that society had changed culturally and that the stories should reflect it. He does, however, lay claim to creating the rather morbid Bluebeard and Ring Around the Rosie, which is a throwback to the days of the plague. I thought you might want to take a look back at some of the more popular fairy tales to see where they came from. So, if you can hang on for just a sec, we'll check those out. And warning, since this is Bag of Bones, there won't always be a happily ever after. We've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people, just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. Snow White was Disney's very first full-length animated feature film and it put him and his mouse on the map but they had to do quite a bit of adjusting to make this fairy tale a family classic. In the original, going way, way back now, there wasn't an evil stepmother. In her original German telling, it was her own mother who was jealous of her beauty. She orders the huntsmen to kill her only daughter and bring back her liver and lungs so that she may feast on them. Of course she doesn't and allows her to escape. The queen tries to kill Snow White three separate times to no avail. First with a bodice that she laces too tightly. The dwarves save her and tell her not to let anyone else in. Then a poisoned comb that once removed she was revived. The dwarves, who must not have been clear the first time, told her do not accept anything from anyone. 
the poison apple comes into play on the third time around. Only half the apple was poisoned, so the queen could take a bite of one side to show that there was nothing to fear because <laughs> Snow White wasn't falling for that one trick again. Well, fooled again. Snow White falls into a deep, death-like sleep. But wait, there was no kissing. The prince did come along and see her sleeping in a glass coffin with a dwarf standing guard. He proclaimed that he must have her. He offered to pay the dwarves, and they turned him down. But he promised that he would cherish her forever and love her always. And with that promise, they let the prince take her. His men came to collect the glass coffin, but when they were carrying it, someone dropped it. It dislodged the apple from her throat, and she was saved. Love at first sight. He asks her to marry him, and of course she says yes. But wait, the story isn't over. And no, the evil queen does not fall off of a cliff. So the wedding is scheduled, and the queen gets an invitation. And before she goes, she asks her mirror if she is still the most fair. And the mirror tells her, quote, You, my queen, are fair, it's true. But the young queen is a thousand times fairer than you. End quote. She has got to see this new queen. When she arrives, she sees that it is Snow White, and of course she is furious. However, they were waiting for her. They heated up a pair of iron shoes in the coals and placed them on her feet, where she was commanded to dance until she died. And she did. In the German version of Cinderella, there are a few differences here, too. Although the version you're most likely familiar with came almost completely from Perrault's editing. He was the one who is credited for adding the fairy godmother, the pumpkin, the mice. The Grimm's stuck with the original, and that goes a little something like this. Cinderella was very close to her mother, who would always speak of the virtues of goodness and kindness. But early on in the story, she passes away and is buried on the grounds of her father's vast property. She would go and visit her mother's grave every day. After about a year, the father remarries to the arrogant and spoiled stepmother and then brought along her spoiled, nasty daughters. This part we know. The father must leave for some reason and asks what his daughter would like for his return. She asks for the twig of a tree that brushes against his coat on his return home. He brings his wife and stepchildren all the gold and dresses they requested but gives his daughter this single twig. She takes it and plants it on her mother's grave, and it blooms into a beautiful tree. I think the father dies in this version, and that's how Cinderella would become tormented and abused and reduced to servanthood in her own home. The other ways the original story differs is that instead of one ball, there were three, and Cinderella kept having to rush out at midnight. The ball gowns came as gifts from her mother through the tree. They would fall from the branches for her to find. And her shoes were made of gold, not glass. Her helpers were birds and not mice. And then, here's where it gets interesting. On the third ball, the prince is determined to marry Cinderella, so he instructs his people to put pitch on the steps. So when Cinderella rushes out at midnight, she steps in it and she is stuck. Literally, in order to get away, she needs to leave her shoe behind. When the prince goes about town looking for the owner of the delicate golden shoe, he comes to the first stepsister. The shoe is too small, 
So her mother pulls her to the side and says, hey, cut off your toes. Convincing her, why would you need to walk? Her mother says, you'll be queen and you'll have servants to do all of your bidding. So the daughter cuts off her toes so the shoe fits. Ah, they are to be married. But on the way to the castle, a little bird tells the prince that the shoe is dripping blood. He is angered by this deception and returns the daughter to the home. The second stepsister slices off her heels to make the shoe fit. Ah, perfect. They are to be married. The prince wasn't falling for that old cut-off-the-toes trick this time. He checked. But on the way to the castle, the little bird tells him, probably rolling her eyes, that the shoe is dripping with blood. He turns the carriage around again and returns the other maimed sister to her family. It was then that Cinderella came forward and showed her perfectly intact, dainty little foot and flipped it into the blood-soaked shoe, and it was a perfect fit. Ah, they were to be married. For real, though. The stepmother and the stepsisters were invited to the wedding and sat in places of honor in front of the entire kingdom, and there the beautiful, lavish wedding took place. Soon to follow, the birds peck their eyes out. The end. Roll credits. The Sleeping Beauty story. Now, this one is, uh, it's special. All the versions start off mostly the same way we're familiar with, where the witch puts the curse on the child, and when she pricks her finger on the spinning wheel, she will either sleep forever or for a hundred years. And then the story changes according to region. The Italian version veers thus. A king is out hunting and happens upon Sleeping Beauty's castle. He knocks, but no one answers. He finds an entire kingdom asleep. The birds, the page, the cook sleeps at his table. He calls out, but no one answers. He continues his search and finds the princess. He calls to her, but as she is unconscious, she does not wake up. Then, and I'm going to read this directly from the original, quote, Crying aloud, he beheld her charms and felt his blood course hotly through his veins. He lifted her in his arms and carried her to a bed where he gathered the first fruits of love, leaving her on the bed. He returned to his own kingdom where, in the pressing business of his realm, he for a time thought no more about the incident. End quote. Did you catch that? Nine months along, two babies are born. Apparently, there are fairies around that make sure the babies nurse and are kept alive. The flax that was poisoning our sleeping beauty was miraculously sucked out by one of the babies, and she woke up. This story tells us, quote, In the meantime, the king remembered her, and saying that he wanted to go hunting, he returned to the palace and found her awake with two cupids of beauty. He was overjoyed, and he told her who he was and how he had seen her, and what had taken place. When she heard this, their friendship was knitted with tighter bonds, and he remained with her for a few days, quote. However, the king had a queen, and she suspected her husband of extracurricular activities. She had found out his secret. So she tells her secretary to go to this girl, in the name of the king, to send the children so that he may make a place for them. And, quote, with great joy, did as she was commanded. Then the queen, with the heart of Medea, told the cook to kill them and to make them into several tasteful dishes for her wretched husband. The king ate with delight, saying, 
how tasteful this is, or by the soul of my ancestors, this is good. And each time she replied, eat, eat, you are eating of your own, end quote. The queen was pretty proud of herself and set out to do the same with the girl. Quote, she was met by the queen, whose face glowed with the fierce fire burning inside her and looked like the face of Nero. End quote. The queen addressed her thus, quote, Welcome, Madam Busybody. You are a fine piece of goods, you ill weed, who are enjoying my husband. So you are the lump of filth that has caused my head to spin. Change your ways, for you are welcome in purgatory or I will compensate you for all the damage you have done to me, end quote. The girl, hearing these words, began to excuse herself, saying that it was not her fault, because the king, her husband, had taken possession of her territory when she was drowned in sleep. But the queen would not listen to her excuses, and had a large fire lit in the courtyard of the palace, and commanded that the girl should be cast into it, end quote. But the king comes in just in time and throws his hag of a wife into the fire instead. The cook comes forward, confessing to the king that he could not harm the children, and returns them to their parents. The two are wed, and they live happily ever after. Before the story can come to a close, the author offers this proverb to make your skin crawl. To those whom fortune favors, find good luck, even in their sleep. This time, it's the German version that's a bit more tame. A, a bit, anyway. This happy ending is brought to you by Divine Providence. The fairies of our fair maiden to sleep for but a hundred years. The entire kingdom, with the exception of the king and queen, are also put to sleep, and even her pup, Puff. At the end of the one hundred years, the throne had passed to another family from that of the sleeping princess. One day the prince chanced to go a-hunting that way, and seeing in the distance some towers in the midst of a large and dense forest, he asked what they were. His attendants told him in reply the various stories which they had heard. Some said there was an old castle haunted by ghosts. Others said that witches of the neighborhood held their revels there. The favorite tale was that in the castle lived an ogre who carried thither all the children whom he could catch. There he devoured them at his leisure, and since he was the only person who could force a passage through the wood, nobody had been able to pursue him. While the prince was wondering what to believe, an old peasant took up the tale. Your Highness, said he, more than fifty years ago I heard my father say that in this castle lies a princess, the most beautiful that has ever been seen. It is her doom to sleep there for a hundred years, and then to be awakened by a king's son, for whose coming she awaits. The prince decides to see for himself. He fights through the wall of thorns and climbs the tallest walls and discovers the sleeping kingdom. He searches the castle and sees the sleeping beauty and was drawn to her side. There he kneels down beside her and reaches for her hand. Then, just at that moment, the spell has been broken and she wakes. She sits up in her bed and sees the prince beside her and is not alarmed but asks, Is it you? Are you the one I have been waiting for? The whole castle is waking up and the prince and princess get to know one another for the next three days. He knows that he must return to his own kingdom but decides that they should marry first. They do, and he heads back home. The prince marries her, but keeps her a secret. When his father dies and he is made king, he then brings his bride and their two children to the castle. His stepmother hails from ogres, apparently. 
and refuses to give up her kingdom to this new queen. Since they have children, they try their best to keep them away from the queen because ogres, well, they love to eat children. She tells the steward to fetch them one at a time and then for him to cook and serve them, but he cannot. So on and so forth. The steward protects the children, like the last version, and he manages to deceive her. The young king discovers her treachery and the old queen, the ogre, is plunged into a vat of scorpions, snakes, vipers, and toads. And they get to live happily ever after, too. You know how I mentioned that stories morph with generations, the culture, and times? And I do believe that art mimics life. I know that the princess stories get a lot of flack from those people that think that they are teaching the children that they won't be happy unless they are married or if they're the most beautiful in the land, but I don't see them like that. And while these original stories are harsh, keep that in mind that they were not originally meant for children. So what if we altered our references? What if we took into consideration the things that were of value when the stories originated and morphed and then morphed again. The newest versions of Cinderella give off a much different vibe. So first, allow that the stories change. And second, what if it wasn't the you have to be beautiful and the only way you can be happy is if you marry a prince was more along the lines of their mother or the one that was meant to protect them tried to kill them and yet she stayed good and honest and grateful and kind. And that is why she was put in front of a prince. These stories, remember, have rules. Even from their very beginnings, they are based on good virtues are rewarded. When you do good things, good things will come back to you. When you do bad things, you will be punished. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. The Frog Prince is one of the first stories in the Grimm collection. The Brothers Grimm greatly treasured this tale and considered it to be, quote, one of the oldest and most beautiful in German-speaking regions, end quote. In this original story, which was later altered to create the Frog Princess version, and then Disney incorporated both stories to create the princess and the frog was simple and short. There once was a princess. She was a spoiled and selfish little girl, but was her father's favorite. One day she was outside playing, and she loses a golden ball down a well. And there at the edge of a body of water was this frog. He croaks at her and says that if he retrieves it for her, would she be his friend and allow him to come into the castle with her? Well, she, of course, agrees, and the frog retrieves the ball. She abandons him at the pond, but he follows her to the palace anyway. The frog is escorted to the table and is set beside the little girl. Her father admonishes her for breaking her promise and that he will see that she keeps it. The frog follows her around and tries to have conversations, but she ignores him. Finally, when it's time to retire for the evening, he tells her that he wants to sleep on a pillow and would she lift him up. This was her final straw, and she picks him up and throws him against a wall, an action she instantly regrets. And it's her grief for causing him any harm that breaks the curse and returns the frog to his princely form. The frog prince who is under a wicked fairy spell magically transforms back into the handsome prince, 
We don't know why the witch cast the spell, but she also cursed his valet, Henry. When the spell was broken, the three chains of iron that were wrapped around Henry's heart to keep it from breaking, for he was so sad at losing his master, and when the frog prince reverts to his human form, Henry's overwhelming happiness causes all three bands to break, freeing his heart from its bonds. So sometimes the story is also referred to as Henry Irons. But there was no kissing. That was the French edition. The story of Little Red Riding Hood was basically just one big veiled lesson. It is believed that this is one of Charles Perrault's original stories. In his version, the little girl is a well-bred young lady who loves her hooded cape that her grandmother made her so much she rarely takes it off. She is warned by her mother never to talk to strangers and never veer from the path. When the wolf comes along and strikes up a conversation, their warnings leave her memory completely. In Perrault's version, the wolf arrives to the grandmother's house first, and he eats her. He puts on her clothes and waits for his next victim. He entices the little girl to come into bed with him, and when she is close enough, he eats her, too. The end. Moral. Children, especially attractive, well-bred young ladies, should never talk to strangers. He is cautioning women and young girls about the dangers of trusting men. He states, quote, Watch out if you haven't learned that tame wolves are the most dangerous of all, end quote. He warns his reader about the manipulation and false appearances some men portray. Quote, I say wolf, he continues, for all wolves are not of the same sort. There is one kind with an amenable disposition, neither noisy nor hateful, nor angry, but tame, obliging and gentle, following the young maids in the streets, even into their homes. Alas, who does not know that these gentle wolves are of all such creatures the most dangerous? End quote. In the Brothers Grimm version, yes, the wolf eats the grandmother and the little girl, but then he goes to sleep. A huntsman walks by and hears the snoring from the inside and decides that he needs to investigate, and he finds the wolf sleeping. So here I find you, you old sinner, says he. I have been hunting for you for a long time, end quote. He is ready to shoot his adversary, but realizes that he probably ate the old woman. Better to cut him up with a pair of scissors, he thinks. So while the wolf is still sleeping, he cuts open the belly of the wolf, and the little girl comes out, followed by Grandma. Instead of just shooting the wolf right then and there, Little Red Riding Hood goes out and gathers some stones and puts them in the gaping hole of the wolf's belly and closes it back up. When the wolf woke up, the stones were so heavy that he fell down dead. The story ends with the quote, The three of them were happy. The huntsman skinned the wolf and went home with the pelt. The grandmother ate the cake and drank the wine that Little Red Cap had bought, and Little Red Cap thought, As long as I live, I will never leave the path and run off into the woods by myself if my mother tells me not to. End quote. The story of Bluebeard is another one that I believe to be the original of Charles Perrault. This one is especially dark, with the moral being, don't judge a book by its cover, or maybe money isn't everything. It's about a very rich man with a blue beard. He is new to the neighborhood, and he is looking for a wife, but no one wants to marry him because he, well, has a blue beard. So he invites over his neighbors who have 
two beautiful daughters and shows them around his house. They are quite enamored with all of his riches and fine furniture and elegant foods. The youngest daughter decides that she will marry him. Soon they are married, and soon after, he has to leave on business, so he gives her the keys to the house and tells her that all I have is yours. You can invite your family and friends over if you'd like and throw a great party, but the smallest key, it opens this room at the end of the hall, but you must not enter. All is yours, save that one room. He leaves, and of course, despite all the gold and silver and riches of every sort, she opens the door. There she finds nine bodies of his past wives hanging up around the room with their throats slit. She screams, of course, and drops the keys. Blood soaks the hem of her dress, and she must try to get everything clean before her husband returns. The blood, of course, does not come out, and when her husband asks for the keys, he sees that she disobeyed his one rule, and now she, too, must die. Luckily, right before he takes her to the small room, her brothers show up and kill Bluebeard, making her heiress to all of his riches. Grimm's version was a little different. Their Bluebeard was actually a sorcerer, and the story was called Fitcher's Bird. The sorcerer would disguise himself as old and frail, then go to town to beg for kindness from all of the cute girls. One by one, he would take them back to his castle and kill them. He came upon the house of three sisters. He spoke to the oldest one, and when she was kind and gave him some bread, he touched her arm and she was magically ended up in his basket. At the castle, he too gave her a collection of keys and invited her to explore as she will except for the one room. He also gave her an egg that they had to carry around. The first sister and then the second were enticed, then challenged, and both failed, so they were chopped up into pieces. The third sister was clever. She too was enticed and challenged, but instead of taking her egg into the room, she set it safely on the table where it wouldn't be broken. The horrors inside the room were as to be expected. She saw her sister's body parts, but she put them back together and then they magically came back to life. So when the sorcerer came back, he saw that the egg and the key intact and he knew that he could trust her, so he asked her to marry him. She had to pretend that everything was fine so she could get her sisters back home again. So she tells him to take a basket of gold with him to her parents' house, and she hides her sisters inside the basket of gold. In the meantime, she's supposed to be preparing for her wedding. So he takes the sisters home with the basket of gold, and then invites all of his creepy sorcerer friends over for the big wedding. In order for her plan to work, she has to cover herself with honey and then um, cover herself with feathers so she can escape and everyone just thinks that she is an enchanted bird. Once she is safely away from the castle, she sets the whole thing and all of the creepy people on fire. There is one more author I'd like to bring to your attention, Hans Christian Andersen. While the Grimm brothers and Perot collected stories, Hans Christian Andersen wrote the majority of his, and he had a bit of a dark side too as he struggled with depression, but he too wanted to use his stories to convey messages of hope. But unlike the German, Italian, and many of the French stories who use fear to push their lessons home, Andersen seemed to come across as sad. 
and I believe that a lot of that comes from his actual life. There are many other authors of fairy tales, of course, but Anderson sometimes gets lumped in with Grimm and Perrault, even though his stories did not come to light for another century, so I thought I would single him out. A few times in his life he attempted more serious drama and was completely enamored with Charles Dickens and his style, but his writer mind always took him back to simpler messages tucked safely under a clever tale. His short stories would present themes of virtue and resilience, always be kind even in the face of adversity, and don't judge a book by its cover. They were stories that adults didn't mind reading over and over again because they were just as entertained as the children. His most famous fairy tales include The Emperor's New Clothes, The Red Shoes, The Princess and the Pea, The Snow Queen, The Ugly Duckling, The Little Match Girl, and Thumbelina. Shortly before his death, Anderson had consulted a composer about the music for his funeral, saying, quote, most of the people who will walk after me will be children, so make the beat keep time with little steps. End quote. The Little Mermaid is probably the best Hans Christian Andersen story that has been Disneyfied. Disney was able to stay fairly close with the original story, but he did have to leave some things out. In the original story, when she trades her voice for human legs, the witch added the torment that with every step she would take would feel like stepping on shards of glass and if she didn't capture his heart in the three days, she would die. She decides that he is worth it and accepts the terms. I can literally hear the Disney music playing in my head while she's signing the contract. <laughs> you? Anyway, the prince takes a liking to Ariel, but like in the movie, he believes that she can't be the one who saved him because she has no voice, so he ends up marrying another. She's given another chance to break the spell and save her own life and go back to being a mermaid if she just kills the prince. But she can't because of her love for him. She loved him so much and she refused to save herself at the cost of her life that the powers that rule the mermaid universe decide to take pity on her. Instead of killing her, she is turned into a daughter of the air. Which is a much prettier way of saying sea foam. In this form, she must remain for the next 300 years in which she might possibly earn a soul. Oh, and my apologies. I had forgotten that Anderson's Snow Queen had been transformed into Disney's Frozen. And that one has certainly outgrossed The Little Mermaid by far. And the similarities between Disney's Frozen and Anderson's Snow Queen? Um, well, there are none. Okay, so they both had trolls and a reindeer, but that's about it, really. Disney could have never given the nod to Hans, and the world would not be wiser. That's how different these stories are. The fairy tale genre is alive and well today, as it has always been. New movies with thinly veiled versions of the classics are still being produced. Then there are those that are just put right out there. The series Grimm, and how many seasons are there of Once Upon a Time now? Fairy tales are still a viable source for entertainment, and there still might even be a lesson or two. The hard work of the brothers and the original fairy tales created means that we will never be without our happy endings. Thank you for joining me this week for another episode of Bag of Bones. 
If you'd like to hang out between episodes, I can be found on the Facebook or Instagram pages. I love hearing your thoughts and if there's anything you would be interested in hearing about. I love creating these episodes for you and if you'd like to help support the show, please consider buying a gallon of gas. It's the bag of bones version of Patreon or buy me a coffee, but it will take me more places. As always, I'm so happy you've joined me. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.